This is the final part of our series about how Jesus was irreligious. As surprising as this may have seemed, what we've been trying to show in this series is that following Jesus is an invitation to step away from a life ruled by regulation, requirements, and the constant feeling that you're just not good enough. In place of this religiosity, Jesus offers us grace. And grace means that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how you've failed, you are welcome. More than that, Grace isn't simply the way into a new life, it's also a way of life. As we talked about in our last video, grace is what it's about to follow Jesus, which isn't always straightforward for us. So for our last part of this series, I want to jump into one of the most brilliant, in my opinion, of all of Jesus' irreligious interactions between him, his disciples, and the religious leaders of his day. The story is found in John chapter 9, and I'm going to read you the whole story because, well, it's just a great story. It begins like this. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His rabbis asked him, (laughs) rather, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Like, you realize you're reading an old story at this point when you're right here in the middle of COVID thinking, well, this story is a little not very uh, COVID-friendly Jesus, just spitting and rubbing it in a person's face. And Can you ever imagine what the man might have felt? He doesn't see any of this coming. Uh, it just sort of happens to him. But anyway, the story continues. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then are your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went, I washed And then I could see. But where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, which I always find an interesting way. This man gets these strange series of names throughout this text. The man who had been blind. It's kind of like the artist formerly known as Prince. Like he's the man who had been blind. But now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the the man's eyes was Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, like how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. So notice his name's changing again throughout this. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. And they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. 
Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Look, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Now ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, now his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that uh, Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man. It's getting a little Monty Python at this point, this sketch is, if you think about it. This backwards and forwards is going on. But the text says, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. So then they asked him, well, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus, who reappears in this story at this point, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Like, this is an epic story. Like, there's humor, there's irony, there's healing, there's tension, there's argument. But it also sets itself up as a window into the challenges of living out the grace life that Jesus calls us into. Like, what's quite interesting is is where the story begins. Like throughout this series, we've talked about the positive facing side of religiosity. What do I need to do in order to get to the place in life that I want? This story starts with the negative. What did he do wrong? Or who's to blame? Or who's at fault that we are here? Now, the question that the disciples ask Jesus is rooted in the religious thinking of their time. They encounter a blind man on the road. And the question which seems obvious for the disciples is to ask whether the sin at fault here is the man's or his parents'. Their religious system had taught them to believe that anything negative that happened in a person's life must have a root cause. Someone did something to deserve this. Someone earned it. You see how that concept of earning 
is kind of always floating around near the surface of our religious lives. Like now, in the face of this man's disability, like this feels like a really crass and uncaring question to ask. And it is. But that's what religiosity does. But before we jump on the bandwagon and start criticizing these ancient people for being uncaring, however, let's ask whether we're any different. Because I would suggest that this genre of conversation between the disciples and Jesus happens all the time in our day-to-day lives. The, the what's the right thing to do question, that often remains unsaid or implicit for us. But the who should we blame questions, they fill our lives, our media, our culture. We've become increasingly convinced that we can blame someone for everything. And I wonder if this approach is rooted in a deep belief that many humans subscribe to, which is that the world or life is fundamentally fair, which is to say that it has a set of rules that it's playing by. And now, our natural response to that statement is to object and say, no, 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 that's not me. I don't think that the world is fair or running to a particular set of core rules. But here's a question for you. Have you ever seen something particularly sad or troublesome and found yourself thinking or saying, it just seems unfair? Like she worked really hard all her life, did so much good in the community. And now in her prime, she gets this illness. It's just so unfair. Like I lose count of how often I hear someone say something like this. Or think about it the think about it the other way around. How often do you see a homeless person and wonder what they did to end up there? For Jesus' young Jewish disciples, the question of who is to blame is a question that helps them navigate two competing worlds clashing together. They believe in a God who is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-fair. So the way to navigate encountering something that's seemingly unfair is to assume that there's obviously something hidden or unseen, some sort of sin somewhere that God is punishing. Again, people still believe this sort of thing today including some Christians. It allows us to say that it seems unfair, but actually it's not. It's just the rules. Of course, like this is much easier to say, uh, and it's much easier to believe if you're healthy and comfortable and have enough to eat. So who sinned Jesus, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. Like Jesus' reply is as countercultural now as it was then. It rejects this analysis of how things work in the world. Instead, he tells his disciples that this whole situation is now an opportunity to see how God actually works, which hopefully by now you're knowing is going to have something to do with grace. Jesus is inviting us to stop thinking about life as some sort of moral game of poker, where if you play the right hand, you'll always get the right result. You can't trace all of the problems in someone's life or the world back to a particular fault of theirs. Rather, there's something deeper, something broken, a fault line in the world. Jesus calls it darkness. And his response to this is to make one of his I am sayings. In this case, I am the light of the world. 
There's seven of these sayings in John's gospel, and in each one of them, Jesus says something about himself that was previously understood to be true of Torah, the Jewish law. So these young disciples would have grown up hearing about how Torah is the lamp to their feet and the light for their path, that if they follow the instructions, then everything should go well for them. And now Jesus is here saying, nope, that's not how the world works. Jesus says that he is the light and he's the one, not the rules, but he's the one that helps us see how God really works. And how God works is grace. Now, we learned when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that famous teaching about the kingdom of God. But here again, we see Jesus being relentless in this point. Like we, we unconsciously and, and maybe sometimes consciously, we break the world up into blessed and unblessed. Social media tells us this story every single day. If your life looks good, it's probably because you are good. There's a whole industry committed to telling you how you too can be like me, the success. If you follow these 10 rules or these seven steps or these five laws. But Jesus' kingdom of grace turns all of this around. It goes against the grain of the world. This strange scene in John 9 reminds us that no one is beyond God's grace and blessing. No one. Furthermore, Skyjitani, in his brilliant little book, What If Jesus Was Serious, says this, Jesus obliterates our wicked tendency to judge others by their circumstances. This is a grace lesson that I think we're very resistant to learn. You see, Jesus wants to show us behind the curtain of his kingdom to help us understand and learn the rhythms of grace. And so the man is healed. Like what I love about this story here is that everyone is so convinced that a miracle can't happen to a guy like this that no one believes it's actually him. You know, it's like nobody even like recognizes him. And grace is like this. It's so different from what we encounter in the everyday cut and thrust of the world that when we do encounter it, it's almost impossible to believe. Can grace really change our lives so much? Like this story deals in miraculous transformation, but it points us towards all the different levels of transformation. Grace asks us, can you believe that this person who used to lie and steal or cheat and damage can be changed? Can they become a wholesome, healthy, truth-filled human? In a world that this seems so impossible, grace says yes, and this happens all the time. But then the story takes a new turn. A a new set of rules are introduced that Jesus is apparently breaking. It turns out that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders point out that working is illegal on the Sabbath. So Jesus healing on the Sabbath is breaking the rules. Like never underestimate humanity's relentless pursuit of rules in the face of grace. And while, I mean, it's so easy to look at the Pharisees in this story and judge them for for missing the point. But I wonder how often are we exactly like this? Do we encounter the grace of Jesus and then try to make it work the the way we want it to? And this is really the core of what I hope we've pointed towards in this series. The history of Christianity tells us 
that we are more comfortable with laws and rules than we are with grace. But grace is what we're called to live in. It's not that Jesus is saying what you do doesn't matter. Far from it. He's saying what we do as his followers really does matter. It's just that what we do should be governed and mapped out by grace. Like our lives are hugely mapped out in terms of achievements and earning. And the rules to success are are so often thought to be clear. So our religiosity, it isn't just a church thing. It's a human thing. We find religious thinking in the gym, uh, at university, at work, with our neighbors, our family. Like, hey, how much can you bench? How high is your GPA? How much do you earn? How big is your house? How many kids do you have? The examples are endless of how we rank and define ourselves according to the rules. But what's also endless is the pressure and the guilt of not achieving the right standard or status. And that's where this story is a profound guide for us. As it approaches the end, we realize that the blindness in the story isn't really about the man we meet at the start. It turns out that the blindness is in the religious people. It turns out that it's us who are being encouraged to see. The Pharisees were convinced that the man's physical state was representative of his spiritual state. But Jesus wants us to see that religiosity makes a really bad map of how to live. This is because rules, regulations, legislation, and laws don't change us. They restrain us, but they don't transform us. Real transformation, as this man in the story discovered, makes you unrecognizable. Religious thinking tries to fake transformation. Like, have you ever noticed how many self-help books there are in the world or, or on your shelf? Have you noticed how often we turn to our governments to make a rule to stop certain things happening and then how those rules don't actually stop those things happening? So Jesus exposes the fundamental problem with religiosity regardless of where we encounter it. It's not the religion or the law that's the problem. It's us. The problem is in us. Because even if we do know what the right path is, knowing the right path doesn't seem to give us the ability to walk in it. So our laws and rules always fail eventually when they encounter, well, us. And this is why it's so destructive when Christianity starts to behave like a self-improvement scheme. We start to behave as if grace itself is something we have to earn. And then we start to act as if transformation is something that we do for ourselves. But this story teaches us transformation comes because Jesus spits on some mud and throws it in your face, which is to say it's something that happens to us when we're in proximity to Jesus. So how do we get through this? How do we avoid the constant slip into non-graced ways of thinking? Well, the journey of the man in the story is a bit of a guide to us. At the beginning of the story, he can't even see who Jesus is. By the middle, he thinks Jesus is a prophet, but at the end, he's understood 
that Jesus is the Messiah. So when we're pressured on how to think or how to be or what to do or how to live, I love Tom Wright's advice relating to this story. He says the only way through is to glimpse whatever we can see of Jesus and to follow him out of the dark and into the light. That's what grace does. That's what Jesus does. And in a world obsessed with religiosity, with rules, standards, achievements, status, and the quest to be good enough, we encounter the profound, beautiful, grace-filled, irreligious Jesus. And he rescues us. And that's what we mean when we say, may his grace and peace be with you.